If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to John chapter two, verses one through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the, water, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had been become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Water into wine, the first miracle story in John. Miracles are a particular feature in this gospel. Scholars often refer to John as a Jewish mystic, and so his version of the story of Jesus reflects the understanding of truth that comes beyond the intellect, and he does so using fantastic miracles, even more so than in the other Gospels. This is sometimes difficult for us congregationalists with our tendency to avoid anything we perceive as unnecessarily emotional. It can get messy, you know. Most of us in this sanctuary are like this because we come from somewhere else, usually a tradition where anything less than literal belief in the stories recorded about Jesus is heresy. But Bishop John Shelby Spong reminds us that When we assume the things in the gospel are actual events, we confuse storytelling and parable with history. So, 
We are quick to push back against our literalists by flexing our intellectual muscles, usually noting with a certain level of smugness that a preponderance of biblical scholarship indicates that John the Baptist had no sense that he was the forerunner of Jesus, that no water was ever turned into wine in Cana of Galilee, that Jesus never rebuked his mother because his hour had not yet come, that Jesus never literally drove the money changers out of the temple, that Jesus never identified his body with the temple, that Jesus never had a conversation with a man named Nicodemus or a woman at the well, that Jesus never fed the multitude by multiplying loaves and fishes, that he never restored sight to a man who was born blind, that he never raised from the dead a man named Lazarus, that there was never a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and that we have no idea, if anything, what Jesus said from the cross, and that no tomb was ever supplied by a rich man from Arimathea. We don't need any of that magic stuff to think Jesus was important. See how smart we are. <laughs> of course, this too is a mistake. For yelling about what we don't believe doesn't tell anyone what we do believe. And progressive Christians have got to do a better job of explaining ourselves so that we can stay in the conversation. We should be more unwilling to let fundamentalists define words that belong to God. Of this particular passage, Reverend Bill Coffin wrote, miracles do not a Messiah make, but a Messiah can do miracles. If you ask me if Jesus literally raised Lazarus from the dead, literally walked on water and changed water into wine, I will answer, for certain I do not know. But this I do know, Faith must be lived before it is understood, and the more it is lived, the more things become possible. I can also report that in home after home, I have seen Jesus change beer into furniture, sinners into saints, hate-filled relations into loving ones, cowardice into courage, the fatigue of despair into the buoyancy of hope. In instance after instance, life after life, I have seen Christ be God's power unto salvation, and that's miracle enough for me. Maybe you have seen Jesus do that in your own life, maybe in someone else's, and maybe the only way to describe it is to call it a miracle. As we move through the stories of John, we'll hear more about these miracles, but rather obsessing over the likelihood of whether the miracles happened or not, or a more palatable explanation, we must remember that John actually never speaks of miracles. John only speaks of signs. It is not about the miracle itself, but the revelation to which the miracle points. Namely, what the writer John thought was important turns out not to be miracles. He doesn't think miracles are important. The whole story is poetry written by John for the hearts of the believing community the details of which reveal the identity of Jesus more than the miracle itself. There is no moralizing in this text, no word about marriage, even though the setting is a wedding, nothing on excessive drinking, nothing about family life, and John doesn't tie up the miracle with a nice bow of explanation. 
Symbolism abounds and can be taken different ways in this text. The chronology of the narrative, that this happens on the third day of the wedding, suggests symbolic representation of the resurrection, a rebirth of possibilities. The six ritual pots of water signify the old order, a faith practiced without hospitality or energy. The amount of wine in and of itself is astounding, but it's also the best wine, not a red blend out of a box. <laughs> Jesus provides overflowing wine that will never run dry. And changing all that water into wine becomes a metaphor for Jesus' ministry as he brings fullness of life. To be clear, this is not about Judaism versus Christianity. This story is an invitation to consider whether any of us are really ready for all things to be made new. John starts his telling of Jesus' public ministry in his own way, just like the other gospel writers do. For Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. For Mark, it's an exorcism. For Luke, a teaching in the synagogue that almost ends with Jesus getting pitched over the side of a cliff. And like Luke, John also starts with a story in which Jesus almost loses his life. You, you might have missed it when I read it the first time, so I'll review with some notes. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Um, and a quick note here. Uh, in the Gospel of John, Mary is never actually referred to by her own name. She is never called Mary. And I know that my raging feminist congregation is ready to call out this absurdity, but we're gonna give John the BOD here the benefit of the doubt because in this gospel, Mary is always referred to as the mother of Jesus. And this is really the plight of all parents, right? Like, you have a baby and you lose your first name. It's an occupational hazard. You're not Paula, you're Hunter's mom. You're not Caleb, you're Scarlett's dad. And she isn't Mary, she's Jesus' mom. So, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Not wanting to cause a scene, not wanting to embarrass the hosts, the mother of Jesus covers her mouth with her hand and quietly whispers to her son, they are out of wine. I know you can take care of this. <laughs> and Jesus, apparently having lost his mind, sasses his mother. Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. It is in the heartbeat after this moment, before his ministry even gets started, that Jesus' very life hangs in the balance. <laughs> the text moves really quickly. The next verse is about Mary giving instructions to the servants, do whatever he tells you. But well, we all know what really happened after Jesus behaved so poorly. Mary switched on the high beams. Can you imagine the look Mary gave her smart mouth kid? I mean, 52% of parenting is just staring holes into your child until they act right. The look 
The look has to be why the text moves from Jesus' dismissive remark to Mary instructing the servants to do whatever he tells them. Did you see it now? I mean, it worked. Jesus straightened up, as my own mother would say. The next thing we know, Jesus does not simply refill a few glasses, but six water jars, each 20 to 30 gallons, become filled to the brim with the best wine. What prompted Mary to give Jesus a gentle shove in the right direction? Something to think about. It is perhaps yet more proof that Mary really knew. (laughs) She really knew. She really knew that Jesus could make a difference here. She saw not just that he could meet a need, but that he should, that he should set aside whatever hesitation, whatever excuse, whatever he had been telling himself, and just get on with it. Maybe Jesus wasn't sure he was qualified, or maybe he was scared. Perhaps Jesus wanted more assurance of a positive outcome, assured success, or a a sign that this was, in fact, the path he was to walk. But Mary's prompt is something akin to The knowing is in the doing. So to get Jesus to roll up his sleeves and do the work, Mary rolls up her own sleeves, sharpens her elbow a bit, and then just plants it squarely in Jesus' back. Get started already. Neither of us are getting any younger. And after all these years, we can imagine that Mary is giving us that same look, Eyebrows raised, chin lowered, head tilted. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? If it is a sign, this is it. You have permission to go work that miracle. Go for it. Don't wait. Do it now. This is the moment. You are the one you've been waiting on. And someone and, or someones are waiting on you too, so do it. Remember, this story is an invitation to consider if any of us are ready for all things to be made new. So what's it going to be, friends? A warning is in order. In the Gospel of John, Jesus goes from being the life of the party to flipping tables in the temple. It's a quick turnaround and not unrelated. So let me remind you, just in the next few verses, it reads, In the temple, Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. And this, in this scene, we see Jesus move from charity to justice. Jesus lifts the cup of life and then strikes a blow for life abundant, a move from meeting an immediate need to resetting the status quo. If the Jesus story teaches us anything, it is that we cannot help the poor without confronting the powerful. The wine will continue to run out if there is nothing being done about who has access, who decides, who controls the poor. 
The playwright Harold Pinter once pointed out that what poisons life is not what's known and unspoken, but what is known and unspoken. That's true in our personal lives. The apology withheld, mercy choked back, jealousy chosen over a word of encouragement, vulnerability papered over with the thin veneer of self-sufficiency. It is killing us and wounding those we love. What, what if Mary had decided not to say anything at the wedding? It makes one wonder when Jesus would have took the dive into the deep end. The hour is now. It was for Jesus, and it is for us. It's true in public life, too. What if, what if Jesus had decided not to say anything at the temple? It would have been a, a tacit endorsement of pay-to-play religion. And so it is with us. What truth must be spoken to overturn business as usual? Perhaps we could stop pretending that the war on terror is working. 17 years ago, the United States began launching airstrikes in Afghanistan, desperate to get Osama bin Laden. Nearly two decades later, we are still waging war in the Middle East, even after capturing and killing bin Laden. Those first airstrikes led to America's heavy involvement in Iraq, Syria, and Libya, and we literally don't know where else. We're just there. Increased political instability and arguably more terrorism seem to be the only consistent results. After the last 15 years, we've spent $2.8 trillion on counterterrorism. Since September 11th, 100 people have died in terrorist attacks by Muslim extremists, about six per year. But in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, an estimated half a million people have been killed since September 11th. Today, 17-year-olds who were not even alive on 9-11 can now enlist in the war in Afghanistan. Yes, we must fight terrorism when it poses a threat, but what we are doing isn't working. Perhaps we should consider putting our money and our effort towards the things that might, in the end, help those who need it most. We will not win the war on terror with drone strikes, arms deals, and secret ops, but with pencil sharpeners, travel visas, books, and opportunity. Until our elected officials, our diplomats, and our military start saying so, we must. As with most Bible stories, the water into wine story both happened and is happening. We are regularly in the moment Jesus found himself in, faced with the decision to try our hand at working a miracle or to just say, maybe later. But the hour, the hour is now, or as the prophet Mary Oliver wrote, that God had a plan, I have no doubt. But what if the plan was that we would do better? You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services 
or every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.